and welcome to McKinsey Israel on High Tech, featuring discussions on technology, business, and management. This podcast is brought to you by McKinsey Israel Tech Hub, where we help tech companies and startups realize their full potential. Hi everyone, I'm Pelek Dekalo, a consultant in McKinsey Israel and the host of this podcast, McKinsey Israel on High Tech. In today's episode, we will learn about one of the core industries that fuels Israel's high-tech sector, the semiconductor industry. The semicon industry is responsible for $450 billion in direct annual revenues, which is roughly 10% higher than Israel's entire GDP. This number still pales in comparison to the real value that this industry generates for the global economy, as semiconductors are the backbone of digitization. This is the main reason for the concern around the significant shortage in the supply of chips across various end markets, ranging from automotive to smartphones. For the sake of illustration, Let's take an example of an automotive company that has been unable to purchase one wafer with chips on it that it needs in order to assemble cars. The inability to purchase this one wafer can be seen as $5,000 to $10,000 loss in semiconductor sales, but could translate into roughly $1.7 million and more in car sales. So the value loss multiples here are in the hundreds. To discuss the ongoing demand and supply imbalance in the semiconductor industry and understand how Israeli startups could capture a piece of the semicon value pool, we couldn't have asked for more appropriate guests on this topic. Yaniv Galti, the Vice President of Intel and the General Manager of Intel Israel, and Dr. Andre Burkatschki, who is a McKinsey senior partner based in Germany and leads McKinsey's global semiconductor practice. Now please sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Andre, Yaniv, it's a pleasure having you both today. I'm delighted and excited to have you both. And why won't we start from a quick introduction, Yaniv? Please introduce yourself and describe Intel in one sentence. I have one job is I'm the Intel Israel GM, and I also have a global job in the field of 5G. And Intel in a sentence, we all live in a digital economy, and we build uh, the building blocks for that. Andre, your turn. Uh, introduce yourself and tell us what got you into semiconductors. Yeah, so my name is Andre Vakatsky. I'm a senior partner at McKinsey. I lead global or semiconductor sector. And what got me into semiconductors is, well, I always have been a technology geek and I like speed of innovation and what could be done better as an industry than semiconductors where you can really see innovation cycles in your lifetime and not one of them, but many of them happening. Thank you, Andre. To help us dive into the complex topic of semiconductors, Could you get us started by quickly walking us through the value chain of the semiconductor industry? It actually, in many, many cases, more than 90% of the cases, starts with sand. And with sand, what you can do is, you can basically have your kids play with it and construct castles, or you can basically take it through an advanced manufacturing process and grow crystals out of it. 
which then basically is for, are then the foundation for what is called a wafer. So a round shiny thing made out of silicon, where you can then build in the structures of your semiconductor device. So the first type are companies that actually do these silicon wafers. Then that wafer needs to get transferred into a chip. And for that, you need design capabilities. Somebody needs to design how the logic of the chip looks like, how the structures look like. So there are companies that do the design of it. Then there are companies that take that design and translate it onto the wafer to start what is called front-end manufacturing, putting the structures of these chips in place. It's a very complex manufacturing process. We see several hundreds of steps being done there. Then the next step is of this round, typically 300 millimeter wafer, cut out the individual chips. So the so-called back-end processing process, put the very typical wiring next to it, so-called wire bonding. So this is the feed of the chips, so-called, that you see uh, once you have it ready in, in, in your hands. And often enough, there is a shell put around it, um, which is this black um, substrate that encloses it and protects it. And this is then basically the so-called back-end manufacturing assembly and testing, when the final test is done. And then the chip is then delivered to the next value chain step, which are then typically the electronics players that put it on top of a printed circuit board, add additional chips. And out of that, we get to a system that, for example, then helps your fridge to operate, that helps your car to move. It's basically then what we as a end customer realize as being a semiconductor device. Thank you, Andre, for this helpful context. Now, Yaniv, where does Intel come to play along that just described value chain? There are companies who are the manufacturers themselves. We normally call them uh, fabs. That's the name for the fabrication manufacturing plant. Many companies design the logic and then deliver that file to the fab to manufacture. Those companies are normally called fabless. And then there are a few companies who are called IDM. IDM stands for Integrated Device Manufacturer, meaning companies that both design the technology and the silicon and manufacture it. And that's what we do. We basically hold a major portion of uh, the value chain from the fabs themselves through all the process that uh, Andre explained, including the testing and manufacturing. And we basically deliver the final goods to our partners or channels to then be put into PCs, 5G base stations, cloud servers, or you name it. So you're designing the technology and you manufacture according to that design. Today, we manufacture the vast majority of our products in-house. So we not only design them, meaning design the technology, design the product, but also manufacture them. That's what makes us an IDM. And there's uh, a portion of our products which are manufactured externally. In, in that case, we play as a fabless company with other fabs. Okay, so this is where you play in the value chain today. Where else do you plan to play in the future? One of the changes we have announced is that in addition to us continuing to be an IDM, meaning we're going to manufacture our own design, we're also going to open up fabs to other companies and let them manufacture their solutions, their products on our process. And they have the option to choose using whatever of the menu of technologies we offer from all of it to none. 
and still manufacture within Intel's fabs. Mm-hmm. Which is something that does not exist today in Intel. It doesn't exist today, correct. We never really opened our fabs to others. Now that we have a better view of the semiconductor value chain and Intel's unique position in it, let's talk about the ongoing global chip shortage that everyone seems to be talking about. Andre, what caused the shortage? Where do we stand now? And is there a prospect for recovery for when we'll get out of it? So first of all, I think one needs to understand that the semiconductor industry itself has been for a very long time, actually for almost all of its history, a very volatile industry when it comes to supply-demand matches. And this is what typically led to the so-called cycles, right? Where there was too low capacity, then you had a too high capacity with the surprises, well, were floating around. Now, what has changed in the last decade is that the industry itself has become more stable. It has grown over critical mass. There has been certain consolidation in the industry. And with that, that demand-supply match was matching on an industry level much better than previously. And with that, we had already an industry which has very high utilization of its assets, which were planned well in respondence to the demand. And then came the COVID situation in 2020. And what we have observed is digitalization on steroids. We went into home offices, used a lot more electronics equipment because we needed cameras, we needed microphones, we needed perhaps a new PC to work from home. The internet traffic has increased by 40% in that period. We were consuming much more digital content that needed a new backbone for the internet, new gateways, new routers, all this equipment used to it. And still, we are big consumers of smartphones, tablets, and so on. So that trend continued. And with this, we have basically seen a demand increase in the semicon industry, which was more than 50% higher than what was expected in 2020. So instead of a roughly 5% growth, we ended up 7 8% increase across the board in semiconductors. And it hit an industry where already the capacity planning for new semiconductor fabs is something which takes minimum three, sometimes four years until you get from a starting of constructing such a fab to really add volume products out. It really takes these three to four years. So this is nothing you can react very fast to a change in your demand. Mainly, and this is the interesting thing about it, the main shortage actually coming from not the highest and most innovative so-called leading-edge semiconductors in the 5, 7, or 14 nanometer space. A lot of the constraint is coming from controllers with more mature feature technology that power our fridges, our other appliances, smart home devices, cars, and so on. And many analysts believe that the shortage is something that's going to last until 2023. You mainly talked about the demand side of things, which uh, from my understanding, it's uh, at least the vast majority of this crisis is stemming from the demand. But is there something on the supply side that we should know about? When we look at it from like some of the things that happened in the supply chain, right? I would diversify in, in two categories, right? One category is things that happen like the plant in Japan that got on fire, right? The winter storm of Texas, which everybody is talking about, right? There was definitely some impact there, but it's not that we never had winter storms before. 
Um, so I would not attribute the supply situation actually to the singular occurrences and just say, okay, it was a bad year. It was just a normal year, which perhaps a bit more here, but not much more, which was a lot constrained on the demand side. So that's the one category of it. The second category on the supply chain disruptions, however, comes more from regional discussions where there is a lot of regional supply constraints that are coming up from more geopolitical situations where we talk about certain regions of the world want to make sure that they have a semiconductor sovereignty and others might not. And this puts a lot of constraints actually on a supply chain that was never designed to be regional. So the semiconductor supply chain is a truly global supply chain with few selective leading companies for each supply chain step because it's so R&D heavy. Never being optimized for being able to produce the entire value chain in one region and supply to that particular region. So if you look at it from that perspective, there is no region in the world that has it all along the supply chain. So any impediments you put on the supply chain in terms of regionalization constraints is a big disruptor, much bigger than a winter storm in Texas. We have very similar, to say the least, view of you know, just what Andrew said. One of the things Intel is synonymous with is Moore's Law, which says that every 18 months something doubles. It started with the density of silicon or chips. You have to give us some background about the Moore's Law. <laughs> Robert Moore was one of the founders of Intel, and there's a law which basically he's the first who stated that, that every 18 months the density of transistors in a chip will double which looked at the time, that was like the, I believe, the early 70s, like uh, science fiction. But not only that uh, that law was proven to be uh, very precise, it expands to other parts of the digital economy and beyond that. And I'm using that reference because up until COVID, we as humanity have basically doubled the amount of data we have produced every 18 months. Meaning that up until 18 months ago, what we have produced over the last 18 months is equal to all the data humanity has produced all over history. And we have used the friction of that. So what we have been on over the past few decades, mainly since the introduction of what we're talking about, which are transistors, which I believe Andre was the guy, you know, there are three uh, Bell Labs rich researchers that got a Nobel Prize for that in uh, the mid-50s. It's basically a digital transformation. Our lives becoming more and more digital. And then COVID hit. And as Andrew said, everything has gone crazy. It has that digital transformation that we have known and been on for a few decades now and have been growing exponentially has now went crazy. And it went crazy. And, and we saw that with the fact that now we need more laptops. We need more phones, screens, printers. We, you know, the food that we get, we order digitally, we use more cloud services, a lot of banking, healthcare, and so on and so forth. So the demand exploded. So your observations on the demand side are right in line with Andre's. How did this then affect the supply side of things? We have to realize, and I think what sometimes people can overlook is the amount of silicon that is involved in each and every product, a very basic car today has about 70 different pieces of silicon. So 70 different chips from the brain of the car until the sensors in your tire. So every action we have today involves a huge amount of chips and those are different. Some of those are very simple and some of those are very high end. 
So when we look at the supply side of that, another trend that has happened over the past couple of decades is that the number of fabs, those manufacturing plants, that can actually produce at the very cutting edge of technology, the top technology for silicon, has gone from about 20-ish, 20 years ago, to three today. Some may say four, but that's basically the order of magnitude of number of uh, companies that can actually manufacture at the cutting edge of technology. So you got Intel, you got TSMC in Taiwan, you got Samsung in Korea. Also, the cost of a fab went from $1 billion to $10 or $15 billion or even more than that. And just to give people a, a sense, the size of a fab today can be two, three, four football fields. Andre mentioned uh, equipment. You know, a piece of machinery in a fab costs more than a fighter jet. So it's very complex. And to be able, in an industry that was very careful about, as, as Andre said, forecasting the demand, because the investment of a fab is huge. And if you don't utilize it, that's a huge penalty financially uh, to a company. The ability to now overcome the shortage that we have, and that shortage is not going to go away because the demand is not going to go away. We're not going to go back. It takes time for the industry to catch up in terms of building those new plants. And you see many companies, us included, announcing that they are investing more money into building and opening new facilities, new fabs, and you see also governments stepping in, and that's the geopolitical angle of that, which also relates to the fact that if I went back 20 years ago, I think the balance was about 40% of silicon manufacturing was in the West, on the West Hemisphere, and 60% on the East Hemisphere. Today, it's 2080. If you had the crystal ball, what will happen to the demand-supply balance in 2022? We forecast that we are probably at right now the deepest point of the shortage and we'll probably start really recovering from that in 18 months or a bit more than that. So it's into 23. After having talked about the semicon value chain and the much talked about demand supply imbalance, let's talk about Intel and also startups in the field. And let's start from Intel. We are all familiar with Intel's strong presence in Israel. What is Intel Israel's role within the global corporation? Maybe I'll start with a kind of short version of our ID. So Intel in Israel started in 1974. So we are one of the first MNCs, the multinationals, that opened up a research center in Israel at the time. And from five people in 1974, we grew to about 14 thousand people right now in Intel in Israel. In many ways, Intel Israel is, is a microcosm of the bigger Intel. We have five areas of focus or pillars of activities. The first one is compute. So we are focusing on developing everything from the uh, core technology of compute, which we call Intel architecture, so IA. So a lot of that is developed here in Israel. Then we use that together with other solutions and put those into a CPU. But the CPU is much more than just a, a computer device. It has interconnects, it has communication capabilities, it has storage inside, some cases graphics. All of that is put into a package and you start adding the software layers on top of that. So we do all of that. Then the second pillar is around communications. So it's things like Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, Ethernet, Thunderbolt, a lot of those are centered here in Israel. 
On AI, we have anything from what we call AI inside. These are data scientists and developers that are focusing on improving our own processes and products and capabilities at Intel through other areas like Mobileye, which is a sister company or a company that uh, Intel has acquired here, which is focusing on autonomous driving, but autonomous driving is basically about AI. And of course, Habana, which is another Israeli company that we acquired lately, which is building AI chips. So these are training and inference chips, which are capable of using or applying AI capabilities in silicon and being put to play in data centers. And the last part on the design side is cybersecurity. That's where we use both software and hardware solutions in order to make our products more secured. And our fifth pillar or, or part of the strategy is our manufacturing. And that's where in our center in Kiryat Gat, we manufacture today in kind of the latest technology of Intel products that either were developed here or developed elsewhere at Intel. Just to color it a bit with the financial data, we, in 2020, overall contribution here to the local economy was over $8 billion, which stands for two points of the local GDP. So our presence here is quite big, but we are definitely not alone. With contributing 2% of the GDP, you definitely have significant influence in continuing to shape Israel as a major innovation hub. From your perspective, Yaniv, what is it that makes Israel a leading innovator in high-tech? What is our secret sauce? I think it's about the balance. As long as we keep a healthy balance, which I think we do, between multinationals or big companies, because some of those multinationals are headquarters also in Israel. But as long as you keep a healthy balance between multinationals and startups, each has a different way of driving innovation with a different focus areas on what innovation is about and a different kind of endpoint. But what's common, and that's, I think, one of the key characteristics of the ecosystem we have, I hope not many are going to argue with me, it's not about IQ. Because average IQ is average IQ, and it's, it's the same every place you go. I think we have more than a good uh, education system, but more than that, it's a culture. And a culture that uh, cultivates innovation in different ways, shapes, and forms that you then take into play, whether it's a big company or a small company, whether it's a company in, in the field of silicon or software or in services, that's the uniqueness of the ecosystem we have here. Mm -hmm. So you see it mainly as if we put a big umbrella uh, on it, then it's talent. It's definitely the talent. And the fact that we have this mixture I mentioned before takes people with knowledge, spirit and culture, as we said, the talent, and enable them to learn the processes, the how to do things best plus them inserting their own secret sauce into, into that. And basically creating, if I talked culture, what a good global company does is it kind of finds the sweet spot in combining the local culture with the company culture to make the best out of it. Yeah, and you basically predicted my next question because we are in the startup nation. So let's talk a little bit about the relationships between enterprises like Intel and startups that, as you said, bring innovations in different verticals and different shapes and forms. What do you see, Aniv, as the different ways in which enterprises like Intel can benefit startups and create further value for the market as a whole? There are multiple layers of that. Um, 
probably the most uh, visible one uh, are things like um, the corporate VCs. And, and we have Intel Capital, which has been, I, I believe, the most active one in Israel. Over the years, Intel has acquired companies here um, at a value of more than $20 billion. So it's 20-something uh, different acquisitions. And Intel has invested in dozens of companies here as an investment arm. So, so that, that's a way for uh, Intel and, and other companies through the venture capital arm or through the M&A arm to infuse the local market, definitely with capital, help company grow and help companies basically uh, have an exit. But that process doesn't stop the minute uh, a company enters a big corporation. And, and it's always a complex challenge. Uh, not all acquisitions end up in a positive way. By the way, I'm an outcome of an acquisition Intel made uh, about 17 years ago. Really? Yeah. And, Tell us about that. Um, I'm, I was part of a small Israeli company called, that was named Envara. We were doing Wi-Fi. And um, Intel acquired us because of our underlining technology, which was OFDMA, which we used for Wi-Fi, in order to go at a new technology at the time was, that was named WiMAX which doesn't exist much today, but it's like a close cousin of LTE or 4G. The fact that you had many people go, uh, started in startups, then went through the, through the schools of how you build solutions in scale. And that view of at scale is so critical for you to actually grow companies beyond a certain stage of startups and actually become companies that can actually can deliver solutions either B2B or B2C or whatever that is, but grow uh, into companies that actually deliver them and not just focus on technology. A lot of that, uh, the ability of the local market to grow went through the fact that many of the entrepreneurs had a certain period of time spent within companies that have known how to do it from before, which are normally the bigger companies. So that's one angle. The other angle is, uh, for example, we have a growth program where we... It's like an accelerator. We call it Intel Ignite. We just, uh, we're going to start now the fifth round, the fifth batch. Every time we get like 10 companies out of about 200 that apply. And we're looking for those companies that can do a few things for them and for us. Those that we can actually help most. And those that can help us, but this is not about us necessarily using their products. But we're looking for those entrepreneurs and people which are trying to tackle big problems from a completely different point of view and are trying to apply different ways of tackling those challenges. Andre, let's finish our discussion with the question of why startups would consider entering the semicon industry. What would be your elevator pitch to startups of that sort? I think that it is actually a fascinating industry when it comes to speed of getting ideas to the market. R&D speed, culture of really understanding topics, right? Really going technologically deep. And with that, it is just from a pure RI perspective, right? When does an idea materialize or not? You will know very fast in semiconductors whether it works, right? And if it works, you will get to a significant size pretty fast, given just the product life cycles. Because you need to just think about that when you look at it from the revenue perspective, more than 50% of the semiconductor industry revenue comes from products that are one to two years old. 
which is completely different to other industries where the product life cycle is more around seven years or even 10 years. So for a significant penetration, it just takes time. And here, time is often precious for startups. And this is why the semiconductor industry provides exactly that. And when it comes to applications around data, for example, within the semiconductor industry, there is actually resilience of data available already today. So there is less groundwork compared to other industries if you want to apply your technology at a semiconductor company compared to others. Gentlemen, unfortunately, like all good things, this podcast is also has come to an end. And it was a real pleasure. And I had so much fun sitting here and talking to you. So thank you very much, Yaniv, André. Thank you, André. Thank you, Pelik. Thank you. It was really fun. Thank you for listening to McKinsey Israel on High Tech. Subscribe to our podcast and feel free to contact us at israelpodcast at mckinsey.com to share your thoughts, comments, and suggestions.